over the past couple of weeks, we've been doing a series, and we've been looking at some of the ways that Jesus came to redeem and transform our whole lives, our entire lives, and that includes um, some of the ways we feel about things and our emotions. So we started a couple of weeks ago uh, looking at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we attempted to tackle the problem of pain. Last week, we explored the idea of sort of looking at silence and solitudes as ways in which we can kind of slow down for long enough so that we can look beneath the surface of our lives and see what's really uh, going on. This morning, I want us to consider uh, the ways in which our past uh, can have an impact on our present and perhaps even our futures and what the Bible has to say about uh, that as a subject. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Genesis Chapter 12, I've got something. Thank you. You're so kind. Genesis chapter 12. We'll start in verse 1. The words should miraculously appear. We've got the awesome Josh on PowerPoint today. He's a legend, so um, you'll be in safe hands. Uh, The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, it's a a pretty familiar story. It's about how God calls this random guy, Abram. He's someone, actually, really up until this point, we don't know very much about at all. He's just some chap. He's minding his own business in the desert until God calls him, and what God does is he calls him to be the one to take God's um, saving, healing, life-giving love to the entire world, actually. And the world at this point in time was uh, spinning out of control and desperately in need of it. And what uh, he does is God makes Abraham a promise. And the promise is this. He says, I will bless you and all nations will be blessed through you. So this isn't turning out to be a bad day for Abraham. I mean, this is all pretty awesome. This is like mega stuff. Uh, Keep reading. Uh, Verse 4, Abraham went as the Lord had told him. So what he does is he goes goes off. He's obedient to the Lord, and he leaves behind him his family of origin. Uh, He leaves behind him his home, all that's familiar to him, his job, his career. He leaves behind uh, all of the safety and the security, and what he does is he chases after God's call on his life in faith. And there's no getting away from the fact that this man is pretty incredible. He's absolutely remarkable, but as uh, we'll see, that doesn't mean to say that he had it all uh, together. Skip down to verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. I mean, clearly romantic. Not quite. Uh, Read on. Uh, Verse 12, when the Egyptians see you, uh, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me. This is a long time ago. Things were slightly different back then. Um, They will kill me, but they will let you live. Verse 13, say that you are my sister. Mm -hmm. So that I, because it's all about me, will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. 
as I said, not massively romantic, not winning any Valentine's Day prizes here. Verse 14, when Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarah was indeed a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And she, lucky her, was taken into Pharaoh's palace. He treated Abraham well for her sake, and Abraham acquired sheep and cattle, men and female donkeys, men and female servants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abraham. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say to me she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Awesome line. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abraham, uh, Abraham, not yet, to his men, and they sent him on his way with everything, with his wife and everything he had. So, in the story, Abraham's this awesome man of faith. He's patriarch uh, to be of a great nation. He tells his wife to lie to Pharaoh. This is like pretty major. She's literally putting her neck on the line, and he's doing it just so that he would be safe, and also, in the process, make a whole shed load of money. So as well as being this mighty man of God, Abraham is a cunning, shrewd entrepreneur, and he's a lying, sexist, really bad husband. But this isn't a one-time thing. Fast forward a few years to chapter 20. This is chapter 20, verse 1. Now Abraham, is that his name changed? Um, just to help us get confused. Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she's had all the name changed too, she's my sister. You think it again. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Lucky Sarah. Verse 3, but God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She's a married woman. So it's happening again, the exact same thing. Abraham's way of dealing with stuff is becoming a little bit of a habit, not just a one-off. This is becoming what looks like to be an ongoing habitual sin in Abraham's life. And it doesn't end with him. It lives on in Abraham's son. Let's have a look at verse 26. Abraham has a son named Ishmael, and that son is not with Sarah. Uh, that's with Sarah's servant, Hagar, which is all a little bit odd. Uh, and then later on in her old age, which is also a little bit odd because she was infertile, Sarah has a son, and she calls him Isaac. And here we read the story of Isaac. Isaac's now all grown up. Um, and it's even, this story is even in the exact same place with the exact same king has happened to Abraham and his mother, Sarah. We're now in verse, uh, chapter 26, verse 1. Now, there was a famine in the land, again, beside the previous famine in Abraham's time. And Isaac, this time, went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands and I will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him. So first of all, and importantly, Abraham passes down the promise to his son. I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all nations. And he passes that 
down onto his son as an inheritance, which is fantastic. Blessing passes from generation to generation. Great. But have a look else at what else happens. Verse 7. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, his wife is Rebecca, he said, she is my sister. Because he was afraid to say she is my wife, he thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she's so beautiful. Sound familiar? Exact same king, exact same place, exact same story. So something's going on here. Um, Abraham's um, penchant, shall we say, for misleading people, that looks like it's getting passed on too. And guess what? It lives on in Isaac's children as well. Turn over to chapter 27. Isaac has twin sons. The oldest is Esau, and his younger brother by a minute or two is Jacob, and these two do not get along at all. Genesis 27, verse 18. He, Jacob, went to his father Isaac and said, My father, yes, my son, he answered, who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Lie. Uh, I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. And the blessing here is the inheritance. The blessing here is the, the promise that God gave to Abraham. Verse 20, Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? Suspicious. Uh, the Lord your God gave me success, he replied. Lie. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. Still suspicious. Uh, I, Isaac is, is elderly at this time. His sight is failing. He's losing his faculties. Uh, and here's Jacob just like ripping him off. Uh, verse 22, Jacob went close to his father Isaac who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He didn't recognize him for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are you really my son Esau? He asked, I am. He replied, lying through his teeth. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. And the story goes on. So here we see Jacob now lying to his own father. And this lies just like the first of many. Uh, he basically becomes a con man, if you know the story. Uh, in, in Hebrew, his name actually means deceiver. And that's exactly what he becomes. So not only does the sin of deceit live on from Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob, it, it kind of feels like it's getting worse. And it doesn't end there. It goes on from Jacob to his sons. Turn with me to chapter 37. Just one more generation. Bear with me. Uh, fast forward. Jacob uh, grows up. Uh, he has a bunch of sons. Two are from his first love, Rachel. The rest are from other wives. And then we read this in Genesis 37. Uh, this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhar and the sons of Zilphar, his father's wives, and he had brought to their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, uh, Israel also had his name changed, this is Jacob, so he was Jacob, Israel, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and couldn't speak a kind word to him. 
Uh, skip down to verse 31. So what happens is not long after all of this, Joseph's out in a field with his brothers. His brothers are shepherds, and they capture him, and they are going to murder their little brother, Joseph. Uh, but then they realize that they can actually make money out of him, and so they sell him into slavery, and they sell him into uh, slavery in Egypt. And then, after they do that, of course, they lie about it all. Verse 31, then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood, which is pretty ingenious. And then they took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him. These are the ones who actually were planning on murdering him and have just sold him into slavery nice family, uh, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Um, So what are we seeing? We're seeing a bit of a pattern starting to emerge. You know, first off, we see it in Abraham, then we see it in Isaac, then we see it in his grandson, uh, Jacob, then in his great-grandsons. And what we're seeing in this example, we're seeing um, deception. Uh, Abraham lies about Sarah, not just once, uh, but twice. Isaac lies about Rebekah in exactly the same way. Um, Jacob lies all the time, including to his own father's face. Jacob's sons lie to Jacob's face about Joseph. Then there's uh, misogyny. There's a whole load of sexual kind of weirdness going on with this crowd. Uh, It starts with Abraham sleeping with Sarah's servant. Uh, Hagar, she's probably some kind of a sex slave. Um, Isaac lies again about Rebekah, and so he's happy for Rebekah to go off and shack up with Abimelech and not really worry too much about what's happening to her. Jacob's a full-on polygamist. He has 12 sons by four wives. Um, Then there's the problem of favoritism that we see running rife. Uh, Abraham favors uh, Ishmael over Isaac, and that causes all kinds of problems. Uh, Isaac favors Esau over Jacob. Jacob favors Joseph over all the other sons. This favoritism creates sibling rivalry, which runs rife throughout the generations. There's a rift between Ishmael and Isaac, and that ends with Ishmael getting kicked out of the family. Uh, Jacob and Esau are literally at each other's throats. Jacob steals Esau's um, birthright or his inheritance, you know, the God, uh, the promise that God made to Abraham. He steals it away, and as a result, Esau says, I'm going to kill you uh, with my own bare hands. Um, And then because they all hate him so much, uh, Jacob's other sons, they sell Joseph into slavery. So what we're seeing here is that sin as well as a blessing, has a way of passing from one generation to the next. And this pattern isn't unique to Abraham and his family. Have a look at Exodus 20. Uh, 20, uh, Exodus 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Now, don't freak out, okay? Um, this bit of the Bible, like lots of the bits of the Bible, get taken out of context all the time. Um, 
as far as we can tell, okay, God is not saying, right, that the great-great-grandkids are going to get punished with their great-grandfather's, you know, sin. That's not what is being said here. I think there are three things that are being said. Uh, one thing that God is saying is, he's saying that generational sin, this generational thing, it's a real thing. Like, pay attention. There's something in this. And it's, it's like he's saying, it's sort of like DNA. It kind of passes down through the generations. And it's not necessarily like sin specifically passes through the generations, but there's this idea that a tendency towards a specific kind of sin can be passed down. Okay, so that's a thing. Uh, the second thing I think he's saying is that sin has consequences. Um, and those consequences can last for generations. There's like an, a ripple effect to the choices that we make. And then thirdly and importantly, on the scale of God's mercy and judgment, mercy wins every time, hands down. So in the text we read that God punishes to the third and fourth generation, but we forget this bit of the verse where it says, but God will show his mercy and his love to the thousandth generation. So if we could imagine some kind of scale, you know, on one side it goes to the third and fourth generation, and then the other it goes to the thousandth generation. On one side is the justice of God to the third and fourth generation, and on the other is God's mercy and his love to the thousandth generation, because that's how God is wired. Is God a God of justice? Yes, absolutely. But God's heart is to show mercy. You know, it is not right you're going to get it now, and so are your grandkids. That's not who God's, that's not who he is. God's heart is to show love and mercy to us. And this idea of God punishing the children for the sins of the parents, it's really tricky, um, and I wanted to avoid it if I possibly could, but I didn't think I could get away with it. Um, It isn't that God is going to punish you for your father's sin. You know, it's not dad messed up or granny played the field or whatever. Sorry, Jesus is mad at you. Um, That's not the idea here at all, which is somehow, sometimes how we think it works. Um, What I think it's saying is the the, the odds are that your grandfather's sin or your father's sin or your mother's sin is probably still living in and out, working itself out through your life somehow. It's probably having an impact on your life right now. Because God is a God of justice, because God is faithful, there are consequences to that sin. And the point we're trying to make is that our family of origin can have a massive influence and a bearing on who we are today. And it's not just our family of origin. You know you know this. It's our past in general, events of the past, some of these experiences that we go through, they shape us. And the point that I'm trying to make is that both good and bad things have happened to all of us. Things in our family of origin, things that have happened to us that have shaped us into who we are today. And we all carry the bad and the good from our past into our present and maybe even into our future, which is why we need to look at this somewhat tricky an unpleasant subject. Abraham, for example, he made a lot of mistakes, but he's still this remarkable man. So he passes on the sins of deceit and misogyny and sexual addiction and favoritism and all of that, and he passes on all of the promises that God made. I will bless you and make you into a great nation, 
and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Talk about an inheritance. We all carry stuff from our family of origin and our past. We all carry blessing and inheritance and uh, generational sin. This is a pattern that we see through the scriptures. So how do we break the power of the past? Well, uh, we bring it all to the cross of Jesus Christ in and through the the life-giving power of Jesus. We can be set free from the past. But in order to do that, we need to uh, come to the cross. We need to be willing to look at our past. We need to be willing to take some time to look at our family of origin so that we can live a life that moves forward. Because sometimes um, the only way on is by going back. Uh, God is able to redeem the brokenness of our stories. But there is work that we need to do in order for us to become the people that God has called us to be. Uh, we need to identify and understand how our story, how our family history is directly impacting the way that we interact with God now, the way that we receive from him, the way that we hear from him, the way that we respond to him, and how all of that impacts the way that we uh, love and serve and and interact with other people, our spouse, our friends, our family. Uh, One of the key metaphors in the New Testament for our new life in Christ is that of adoption. Have a look at um, Galatians chapter 4. It says this, in verses 4 and 5. But when the set time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. What's this got to do with breaking the power of the past? You see, I'd always read what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, which is, therefore, if anyone is in, in Christ, he's a new creation, the new has come, the old has gone. And when I read that, what I, I, I understood that to mean was that at the point that I came to Christ, I was totally free from all of the rubbish and all of the pain and all of the stuff that had gone before. And that's true, and that's not true all at the same time. And thinking about adoption has helped me with this. So um, imagine for a moment that Kate and I were to adopt a child. Uh, I, let's, I, I became a Christian when I was 15. Let's just say Kate and I were going to adopt a 15-year-old um, boy. And let's just imagine that this 15-year-old boy, he's lived for 15 years as an orphan. Uh, he's from another country. Uh, he's from another culture. He's from a different continent. And let's just say that this 15-year-old boy that we're going to adopt um, has a difficult backstory. At the moment that Kate and I walk out of the courtroom, or wherever it is, with our adoption papers in hand, uh, this boy is now legally ours. The old is gone, the new is here. So legally, positionally, technically, he is no longer an orphan. He is right then, in that moment, a Woodward. Uh, He has become... Our son. He's not even just our adopted son. Uh, he is our son. He's exactly the same as Joe or Nat. He has become Esther's third brother. He's become our parents' grandson. He has, from that moment, all the rights and privileges, uh, challenges of being one of our children. And so we'll have food and shelter and love and cash on demand and lifts to wherever at whatever time of day or night. We need to rethink this, darling. Uh, 
Um, he literally becomes, in that moment, a fully-fledged member of our family. But he's also had 15 years of a whole other way of living, a whole other way of doing life. And so behaviorally, which has nothing whatsoever to do with his legal standing, behaviorally, over the coming years, he's going to have to relearn how to relive into his new family. And so he's going to have to learn that he doesn't need to hoard food at dinner because he doesn't know where his next meal is going to come from. He's going to have to learn that he doesn't have to do anything to earn our love because we just love him for who he is uh, completely. He has to learn that he doesn't need to live any longer in fear of threats or violence or abuse because that's not going to happen and on and on it goes. And so we have to keep reminding him that that was your past and that is not your present, and nor is that your future. And so every day we are to effectively re-parent him and call him into this new family. As followers of Jesus, we're all that 15-year-old boy. The New Testament says we've all been adopted into the family of God. And the calling of Jesus is for us to let go of our past behaviorally and to live into our new present and our future, our new future reality. Because those things are no longer who we are. Galatians 4 verse 7, you are no longer a slave, but you are God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you into an heir. And so once we begin to realize this, the question, is become, the question becomes how. How do we break the power of the past? Um, here's some, a few thoughts from um, Psalm 139. 23 to 24, which uh, just to close with, which might help us here. Psalm 139 uh, says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so using what we talked about last week about the silence and the solitude, just getting some time in the presence of God. Um, first of all, bring all of this. Bring your past. Bring your experiences. Bring all of it before God and look at it. Take a look. Um, that's the first thing. The first thing is to bring it to God and identify it. Um, for some of you, your past have been horrendous and it's obvious. It's obvious what's happened to you. But we need to be prayerfully asking the question in the presence of God, all of us, who are the people and what are the events that have shaped me into who I am today that will better help me understand both the bad and the good that I have inherited. Find time to be quiet in the presence of God and ask the Spirit of God just to bring those things to mind. You just spend some time reflecting. You don't need to go digging around. Just ask the Holy Spirit to bring those things to mind. So bring it all before God and look at it. The second thing is bring it all before God and take it to the cross. Um, whatever comes up, whatever it is, um, take it to the cross and leave it there. Nail whatever has happened to the cross and leave it there. Um, if you need to forgive, forgive. If you need to repent, repent. But lay it all down at the cross. And then the third thing is, um, bring it all before God and share it. Um, whatever it is that uh, the Lord brings up, whatever it is the Holy Spirit brings up, bring that before God and bring it to church, um, which sounds odd. What do I mean by that? 
What I mean by that is one of the worst things that we can do with sin in general, along with generational and habitual sin, is do what we all do, which is to hide it and sweep it under the carpet and just pretend that it's not there and deny it. The worst thing we can do is keep it a secret because secrets have power. They have authority over us. They keep us enslaved to wrong thinking and then to wrong doing. But when this stuff gets brought out into the light, into close and loving and godly relationships, we begin to see things for what they are, which is basically lies. These things, whatever they are, are not the truest things about us anymore because we have died and our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. We have given ourselves over to following Jesus, and so they are no longer true. But we need God the Father, and we need our community, our family, the church, to together raise us up into this new identity. Um, That's why we encourage you all to be in small groups and to foster these kind of of relationships. You see, remember that Jesus said you need to be born again into a new family. Later on, he says, whoever does um, God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. The dominant metaphor for the church in the New Testament is family. And it's the church's job. And, And when I say the church's job, I mean all of us. It's all of our job to raise one another like that 15-year-old boy, and to reteach one another how to live fully into the family of God. That's all of our job. That's all of our calling. That's all of our mandate for us all to be doing with one another all of the time. Because the truth is, is that we see the truth about one another more easily and more readily than we see the truth about ourselves. And our job as brothers and sisters in Christ is to call out the truth that we see in one another's hearts and to bring that out to the fore as we call people into their place in the family of God. Your biological family does not have to determine your future. You are not a victim in the kingdom of God. No matter what you have done, no matter what has been done to you, you are not powerless in the kingdom of God. The the power that raised Jesus Christ, the Messiah, from the dead is coursing through your veins. And because of the cross of Christ, you can take all of the good from your family of origin and your past, and you can carry that on to your children if you have them and into the lives of the people around you to the thousandth generation. And you can also take all of the rubbish and all of the sin and all of the pain that you carry from your past, and you can nail it to the cross of Christ as you step into the fullness of your inheritance as sons and daughters of the king. Does that make sense? Nod politely. 